Hi there, my name is Ganika Pinnam. And I'm Farika Pinnam. We're sisters and the co-founders of IDA. If you're an entrepreneur or a new and upcoming brand, discover customer and audience insights about your product niche at thinkida.com because we are where your customers are. As founders of IDA, we've immersed ourselves in the startup world and become obsessed with all things entrepreneurship. We've learned a lot along the way and still are. And now we want to share that with you, our listeners. Whether you're already a savvy business owner, just getting started, or an aspiring entrepreneur, you are in the right place. Join us as we journey through the ahas, the oh no's, the why me's, the ups and downs, and those serendipitous moments when something clicks and it all falls into place. Welcome to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back, and this is the second part of the finance, personal finance for entrepreneurs episode that I've been recording, so if you missed the first part, make sure you listen to that first because I just had to split the episode into two because it was getting too long, so this is a continuation of that episode, so make sure to go back and listen to the first segment, and now let's jump into the second segment where I'm going to be talking about different platforms that I recommend for investing, as well as if you are on the entrepreneurial route. Um, quitting your job or retiring early and all of those things. So let's jump in. So anyway, going into starting the accounts and just beginning investing, if you haven't already, or even if you are, but you want to find a little bit more about what's out there, like the different kinds of platforms you can use. So when I first started, I started on Betterment, like I mentioned, and I started with like $75 a month um, investing into Betterment. And then I stopped after I would say about a year or a year and a half. And I haven't put any more money into Betterment since. And the reason I haven't put any more money into Betterment is because I'm actually not a huge fan of the platform. When I was first deciding to open up an investing account, I was between Betterment and Wealthfront because I wanted a robo-advisor where I would literally just put money in and not have to think about it because I was just getting started. And it's not like Betterment performed poorly or anything. The way the robo-advisor apps work is you just pick your risk tolerance and it will put money into like some kind of allocation that it decides for you based on their algorithm where it's, oh, like 20% global shares and, you know, 50% US stock market and 10% US bonds or whatever, things like that. And it will like pick those percentages for you. I think at the end of the year, when you get your like documentation for them to file your taxes, you can see the securities that are in your account. I think you have to for tax purposes, but I'm not 100% sure. But at least in the app, you can't really see what you're invested in. You just see percentage of the allocation that like the robo-advisor picked for you. So that's why I started with Betterment. And the reason that I don't want to do it anymore is not because, like I said, it doesn't perform, but because the user experience on the app is not that great. Like it's very, it's not as terrible as like Fidelity or Schwab, which I'll get into, but it's just like not fun. And it's just kind of like a little bit hard to navigate, I would say. But again, it it was fine to get started with. And I'm just leaving the money in there because I don't want to take it out for no reason and pay the capital gains tax right now. So I'm just leaving it in there to grow, but I'm not adding more money to my Betterment account. The other platforms that I use, Robinhood, which obviously I've been talking about this whole podcast episode. Um, I really like Robinhood. I know that people are not a fan of it because of various things that have happened with it, which, you know, I know that they can do some work with their customer service and stuff. But I like Robinhood because it's really easy to use and it makes it easy to monitor your portfolio. I also really like M1. I use M1 for my Roth IRA right now and like an individual account. And I really like M1 because they have these this concept of like pies, which you're building your own pie of 
where you can put like different stocks into it and you can set the percentage that you want. And then sometimes the slices of the pie can be a whole other fund that's already pre-made. And you can all, they also have target date funds available and like preset pies that you can pick from. So anyway, I really like M1 because you're kind of getting to create your like own allocations, like whereas the robo-advisor just picks them for you, right? And it's also a very user-friendly app and I really like it. The other platform I use, which this is actually not even about investing, but it's something that I started doing like earlier this past like 2021. And it's a high yield savings account. So if you are, you know, like I said, it is still important to have some money in cash either for like, you know, just like emergency fund or, you know, whatever cash that you have that you think that you don't want to be putting into an investment account. With the high yield savings account, you're actually going to end up making a significantly higher interest rate on your savings. Of course, it's nothing like through the roof or anything like, you know, your investment returns, but it's a lot better than a typical bank account. So like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, a typical bank account savings interest rate is going to be 0.01%. And the high yield savings account is going to be much higher, like 0.5%, 0.6%. And the one that I'm using right now is 1% interest rate, which is a lot. It's like 100 times more than my bank's savings interest rate. The one that I'm using is T-Mobile, which was <laughs> funny because I didn't even know that T-Mobile has a savings account that you can set up, but it is FDIC insured. So, you know, up to $250,000. So if it goes under or something or it tanks for some reason, your money is secure. Um, Otherwise, I definitely would not put it into that because I didn't think of T-Mobile as a financial institution. But yeah, a high yield savings account, I would definitely recommend it because it's just like an easy way to, you know, if you are going to have money in savings sitting around, it's an easy way to kind of maximize that another platform that i like is crypto.com now i will say crypto.com is not like a pretty platform or super you know aesthetic or user friendly but i like it because the fees for crypto is less or zero so it's a lot better than some of the other crypto buying platforms in that regard and actually crypto.com just renamed the staple center so from staples into crypto.com center so crypto.com has its own coin too which is cro if you join the platform you can also buy the coins that are associated with the platform itself so you can invest in that company itself like if you think this app is going to do really well which i feel like it might because clearly they just had the money to rename the staples center so you can do that now the ones that i don't like so i already talked about betterment believe it or not i don't like coinbase so i do use coinbase and coinbase pro and coinbase wallet But I don't like Coinbase because it doesn't make sense to me why it doesn't show the growth of your investments. Like I said, crypto.com by all means is like not aesthetic at all and either. But, you know, Coinbase is definitely better in that regard in terms of the aesthetics of the app and the cleanness of it. But I feel like for such a big company and one that's like so famous for crypto trading, they need to show you the investment returns and they don't. So in Robinhood, let's say you put $100 into some stock, it will show you, hey, this stock is up this percentage since you put it in or you're down this much money, you lost this much money on the stock. Coinbase does not do that. Like you just have to keep track for yourself or like go back into your transactions and see what date you added money into the account but it doesn't show you that you made money or you lost money on a particular crypto coin or even overall for your account it doesn't show you any of that you just have to remember or keep track this is how much the value of your portfolio was before and this is how much it is now so i don't like that and then i did allude to this earlier i don't like these fidelities and charles schwab's and all these i find them so antiquated like my 401k is through fidelity so i have to use it because of that but 
I would never open my individual account through Fidelity because it's so complicated to even buy a single stock or even see where to sell or manage your portfolio. They have all these like buttons and way too much information, which I just think overcomplicates. Now, I have been seeing ads that these older financial institutions have been coming out with user-friendly mobile apps, which I will be honest, I haven't tried. So maybe they're better in that regard. But as far as like just the general like web app platforms for Fidelity and these things, I do not like them. Okay, so that was my kind of rant about the ones that I don't like. Um, but hopefully that was helpful. Basically, in summary, Robinhood, M1, T-Mobile Savings Account, Crypto.com. Highly recommend if you're looking to get started with investing or, you know, open up a new account or like platform that you want to try. And then once you do open these, like, okay, when do you buy and when do you sell? So for buying, if you buy every month or bi-monthly, like when you get your paycheck, you're going to end up dollar cost averaging it, which basically means that you're averaging out your losses and gains versus picking the perfect time to buy because if you're trying to find the perfect time to buy it's going to be really hard as you probably heard to time the market i'm sure you've heard of this statement before time in the market versus timing the market you know and if you haven't basically that means buy and hold and get more time in the market versus trying to pick the perfect time to buy it to get the maximum returns just like buy it at some point and if you just hold it for long enough you're going to make your money so if you just buy consistently like every month or bi-monthly when you get your paycheck and just start putting a little bit into it that's going to be good and i think that's an easy strategy so it's kind of out of sight out of mind like you're just automating it and you're not having to worry about when to buy and trying to pick the perfect time to buy now of course there's certain really advantageous times to buy like buying at a dip right like when it falls obviously not when something's tanking and you're like what's gonna happen because that has happened um a couple times where like you know it tanks so bad um, it doesn't make sense to buy the dip because it's still just going to go on a downward spiral. But if you know this is like a stable stock, it's going to bounce back or it's like a blue chip stock, um, you can buy it at the dip. And when I say blue chip stock, I basically mean like stocks that are like high tier, you know, in the S&P 500 and have performed consistently well over time, um, like Coca-Cola or like Microsoft or, you know, Apple and things like that. So you could start setting some funds aside in your brokerage account to buy it a dip. So let's say that you've been, you know, dollar cost averaging and buying every month or every couple of weeks, but you know, there's like a sudden dip and you want to buy. Typically, like when you try to buy, you can transfer money into your account and they will let you buy because they know the money's coming in. So, you know, it will let you make the transaction right away. Like, especially on Robinhood, I know that, you know, if you're trying to transfer money into your account, even if it doesn't hit Robinhood right away, it will still let you buy the stocks because you did initiate the transfer. But I also like to just start setting some funds aside inside the account where you're just keeping it in the account. You haven't invested it yet. Um, and it, then it's there for you to buy at a, the, at a dip at the right time and capitalize on that. Start investing, but then also just have some cash on hand, either that you can transfer in or inside the brokerage account so you can buy at a dip in the stock that you really believe in. And then regarding when to sell. so. With selling, I would keep a couple things in mind. One is the capital gains tax. So if you sell one, before one year and you've held this stock for like less than one year, it's going to be taxed at your tax bracket level, like your income tax level. If you sell after a year though, so let's say you hold it for more than a year, then 15% is going to be the likely percentage you'll pay on this capital gains because... Um, if you sell after a year, their capital gains tax brackets change and they have their own tax brackets. 
versus if you sell before a year, it's the same as the federal income tax. Does that make sense? So if you sell after a year, 15% is going to be the likely amount you'll pay. And you'll see why if you look up the tax brackets for the capital gains tax. And if you sell before a year, you're going to end up paying typically at least 22%, if not more. Again, based on average incomes and stuff that I'm going off of here. And you know, if you make more, you're going to end up paying more because both the short-term and the long-term tax for capital gains are based on the total taxable income, not just the profit. So keep that in mind. So even if you sell before one year or after one year, the tax rate that you're going to be taxed at is calculated based on your total income, not just the amount of money that you made in profits from selling the stock. So this timing is one aspect of when to sell. And the other is realizing your profit, which is a personal preference for me. Some people like to just hold and, you know, wait for it to go up further, which is totally fine as well. It just depends on your preferences. But for me, I like to make back at least the initial money that I put in and a little bit of the profits if I see something going up a lot. And instead of waiting for it to, oh, maybe it'll go up even further, like I'll wait a little bit, but I don't like to wait a really long time because it might just start coming down because everyone else is trying to realize their profits and start selling. So I like to sell a little bit to make back the initial amount of money I put in and a little bit of profits back. So especially for something that's been down a long time and it's finally picking up like, oh my God, finally the stock is doing better. I would just rather like realize my profits pull out and just go and not be in that security anymore versus like waiting for to see what will happen especially if it's something that's been down bad you know um and or also if it's like super viral and like spiking like with GameStop well you saw like a lot of people made money right because you know it was like going to the moon blah 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 but a lot of people lost too because they didn't sell it in time like they were waiting for it to go up even further and they lost money because it started going on the downward spiral again after the big spike so yeah that's kind of a little bit of notes on buying and selling and the important thing here. I would say with these accounts and just everything like that we've been talking about is just to go for it. So be comfortable with the amount of money that you're willing to lose and, you know, figure out your risk tolerance, figure out the amount of money that you're comfortable playing with to set these things up and comfortable losing if you do end up losing, which, you know, based on your risk tolerance, if you're doing like ETFs and stuff and you hold it, even if there's a dip, you're not going to lose this money. Again, not a financial advice statement or anything like that, but I personally think that you're not going to lose this money because the market always recovers and trends up. So if you're smart about it and you like invest in what you're comfortable with, yeah, if you invest in like individual stocks, you're going to lose some money and I have before. But, you know, if you're playing it safe and you're just getting started, and you're not sure what to do and you just buy like the S&P, like an, a fund, an ETF that tracks the S&P 500, the VU that I was talking about before, it's going to trend up because the market always recovers. So you're not really going to lose money. and it's going to teach you how to start using these platforms and just get started investing. So that's the most important thing. Like you can learn all you want, but until you just start doing it and playing around and setting up these accounts, you're not going to have the benefit of that hands-on experience. So just start doing it. And maybe if you've already had some of these accounts that we talked about, like you already have your ESPP set up and you already have a 401k and you already have like, you know, like a Robinhood or a Betterment robo-advisor or whatever, but you want to start a high yield savings account now just do that or you haven't been investing in crypto and you want to open up a crypto.com or a coinbase account do that and again i know i like ragged on coinbase because it doesn't show <laughs> the returns but it's not a bad app so if you're trying to 
get started like you can still use coinbase but yeah just start doing because that is the best way to learn and you can start with a small amount with whatever you're comfortable with and some of these apps will even give you money just for signing up so you can do that too if you want like you know you get like ten dollars in bitcoin or whatever just for signing up for sometimes these crypto apps okay so now we're gonna get into the quitting your job working for yourself all that fun stuff part of this episode and actually i do think i'm going to split this Hey, have you ever wanted to create your own podcast and share your own light bulb moments with the world? If so, now is the perfect time to do so because audio is the future of the internet and Anchor is a perfect place to do it. So Anchor is a podcasting platform you can find at anchor.fm and it's what we use to create the light bulb moment podcast. So Anchor is amazing because first of all, it's completely free to use. Yep, completely free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. So I've used Anchor to record with other guests on a mobile app, and you can also edit on your computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you across so many platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other major podcast streaming sites. So you don't have to set up individual accounts and try to distribute to all of those places. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum subscribers needed. And it's basically everything you need to record, edit, and publish your podcast in one place all for free. So I highly encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck. Just by itself. Like I know that I said there's another part coming that Ganika will do. But I think I'm going to split this one too because it's just very long. And clearly I talk a lot about these things so getting into first let's look at quitting your job and then retiring altogether and just not working at all so quitting your nine to five so you can like work for yourself just a couple things to keep in mind when you quit your nine to five obviously well you're still gonna own the money that you put into your 401k except like we talked about earlier you know you might not own the match if it has invested yet but you're gonna own the money that you put in yourself right but when you quit it, you're not going to have the ability to keep contributing to a 401k through your employer, obviously. But, you know, you still want to keep up your retirement fundings, right? So what you can do is set up a SEP IRA or a solo 401k. So a SEP IRA stands for Simplified Employee Pension Individual Retirement Account. <laughs> it's a mouthful. And that is for self-employed people, you know, if you have a small business and stuff. And you would do that if you are self-employed and you have employees also that are eligible for a 401k contribution and you would do a solo 401k if you don't have any employees and you're self-employed so you would either do a SEP IRA if you're also trying to um, set up 401ks for your employees and a solo 401k if it's just you that's self-employed or you can do it for you and your spouse and the limits for these are pretty high guys so for a SEP IRA or solo 401k you can do up to 25% of your income or $61,000. That's the limit for 2022. So isn't that pretty cool? Because if you think about it, the 401k that we were talking about earlier, which is to your employer, that had a contribution limit of 20500 right? And the match, you know, from your employer. But obviously here, because you're self-employed, you're, you are matching yourself. So your total limit here is $61,000 for 2022, or 25% of your income. And the way the IRS decides which one it is going to apply is whatever is less. So if 25% of your income 
is less than $61,000, that's what's going to apply to you. Or if $61,000 is less than 25% of your income, that's what's going to apply as far as your max limit. And these are tax deferred. So with a SEP IRA and a solo 401k, it's a traditional, not a Roth. Okay, so meaning that you're going to um, defer the taxes. You're not going to pay the taxes now, but you're going to pay the taxes when you take money out of these accounts later. Do keep in mind, like I said, SEP is for if you have eligible employees for a contribution. Whatever percentage of your income that you're saving for yourself, you have to let them defer the same amount. It doesn't mean that you have to give it to them for free or you have to match it for them, but it means that you have to let them tax defer that percentage of their income if you're doing that percentage. So if you as the owner gets to do something, basically they get to do it. Uh, so that was, you know, for quitting your job, make sure you have like a SEP IRA or 401k, solo 401k set up. Also make sure to get health insurance for yourself. Um, that's really important because that's another benefit that you're going to end up losing when you quit your job, like unless you're on somebody's health insurance already. So make sure you have health insurance for yourself. And there's a lot of companies that will do like self health insurance for freelancers or health insurance for like entrepreneurs and small business owners. So there's a bunch of companies set up that are like particularly dedicated to providing health insurance, like if you're paying for yourself. And then also having a savings. So even though, you know, likely you're going to be making money from this business and, you know, you have these retirement accounts set up, it's always good to have that cash reserve set up. So I think personally, my goal is six months of living expenses, just knowing that you can pay yourself, um, you know, if something were to happen or just having that sitting on the side you know, like knock on wood, hopefully you won't have to tap into it, right? I've heard like through blog posts and different podcasts that I've been listening to, I've heard most people say that they quit when they are making more from their side hustles than their nine to five. People will say that's when they felt in their gut like it was the right time to quit or like when they saw that they're literally making more money from the side thing that they love doing than, you know, their job. But for me personally, I also think it could make sense that maybe 70 to 80% even like when you're making less than you're making at your job from your business, but it's worth it to quit because it's going to give you the time to grow it more and maybe even have a bigger upside. So, you know, you're making a little bit of sacrifice at the forefront because you're taking a pay cut essentially, but you're able to dedicate more of your time and passion to something and make it grow bigger. So that's just a personal consideration. Like, can you know, just consider maybe if you can live on less, maybe you don't have to make your target, oh, I need to either save more than I'm making at my job to pay myself more than I'm making at my job or I need to make sure that my income from my business is more than I'm making at my job maybe you're satisfied or able to live on less so that you can quit and have the time to make it go bigger the other thing I would note here with respect to quitting your job is if you do quit your job obviously you're not going to have that steady income to support your side hustles or business right so sometimes it can be tempting to you know like for your business then you might have to put it on a credit card or take out loans against your house and this can just get pretty dangerous so i'd steer clear of it i haven't done the taking out a loan against a house part because i don't own a house but yeah i would just be careful with like business expenses on a card in general because it can get pretty steep so just be mindful of that i would say getting into money to retire so that was like Okay, you're quitting your job, but you're not retiring yet because you're still going to keep working on your business and growing. But let's say you're like ready to retire and retirement means different things for different people. And this is actually a really great journaling exercise you can do is like figure out like what does retirement even mean for me? Like and or like what does financial independence even mean for me? Because you have to 
kind of know, I would say this is your goal, right? Because we were talking about this before too with your risk tolerance. Is your goal to retire early? And if so, then what are you going to do when you quote unquote retire? Like maybe it just means traveling or maybe it means you're still going to be working, but you don't have to work, you know, or maybe you're going to be consulting in like an area that you really like or running a nonprofit or whatever it looks like for you. It's important to kind of figure that out. One, so that you have kind of like a vision of what you want this to look like. But two, so you can figure out how much money it actually takes to support that lifestyle. Because obviously the lifestyle of like you are going to be traveling is going to cost differently in retirement versus you're going to be working a little bit, but maybe instead of 40, you're going to be working like 10 hours, you know? Anyway, getting into the money that you need to retire. The first concept that I'll address here are the concept that I'm going to be using as an example is FIRE. So FIRE stands for financial independence, retire early. So if you haven't heard that term before, it's basically like this movement of people that want to retire early. And this looks different for everyone. So I'm not going to get too much into like what you need to do on if you're following the FIRE regimen. Um, you can't see me right now, but I'm using all these air quotes because um, it's very different. Like if you get into it and you read, people take this to a very far extreme. Like they will basically you know insist on walking everywhere not buying any new clothes eating like the cheapest food possible like noodles and just bananas and things like that like as a personal choice things like that like you will see the extremes of fire if you dig into it when i say fire i'm not talking about like these steps that you have to follow because there are like certain steps that you can follow to achieve fire but it's more like the general concept of retiring early and when you're figuring out how much money you need to retire there is a general rule of thumb um, which is the 4% rule, which basically means that you figure out how much money you need each year in retirement. So that's why I said it's important to know what does your retirement look like. But let's just say you figure out that you need 40K per year to live on, right? So even if that's not what you're making now and living on, like I said before, in retirement, you might end up needing less because you're not spending that money to putting it into a 401k or trying to save, right? You're just trying to live. So let's say you need 40k. The 4% rule basically means that you are going to divide 40k by 4%, which I'll get into why, right? So basically that's going to give you the amount of money that you need to have saved up for retirement. And the 4% rule has a couple assumptions. So it's that one, you are retiring at 65, okay? So you're retiring at like the typical age of 65 and this money is going to last you 30 years. So it's going to last you until like 95. And it also is assuming or it's based on the calculation that your money is growing at a 7% rate. So 7% interest rate and there's a 3% annual inflation. So 7 minus 3 is 4. So basically what it's saying is that like, hey, if you have this amount of money lined up and it's going to keep growing at 7%, but it is going to lose its value because there's going to be a 3% inflation. It means that you can safely take out 4% of your fund every year and not have it disappear. Because that would be the worst thing, right? Like you spend your retirement money because you took it out faster than it was growing. So this is supposed to protect you from that because you're going to be taking it out at a rate that it's like replenishing itself. Let's say you're trying to live off 40K, then the calculation would be 40,000 divided by 0.04 for 4% and you need a million dollars. So if I wanted to retire with $40,000 a year and I wanted to retire at 65 because that's what I said the rule assumes, 
then I would need a million dollars. And that means that if I had a million dollars, Nasdaq at 65, I can take out 4% of it safely, $40,000 a year safely for 30 years and not run out of money in retirement and have to go back to work or something like that. That is a 4% rule. But since we're talking about retiring early, how do we apply this to retiring at a younger age than 65, right? Because 65 is like the typical retirement age. So something that I learned, and this is not by any means like my own math, (laughs) this is from the Money Guy Show, which is a podcast I really love listening to for personal finance things and would highly recommend. It's created by like two financial advisors. And basically what they talked about in one of their episodes is for every five years that you're retiring earlier than 65, you would deduct 0.5% from 4%. So if I wanted to retire, for example, at 50, then I would take 4% and 50 is 15 years less than 65, right? And like I said, for every five years, you deduct 0.5%. So from 4%, deduct 1.5%. So if I want to retire at 50, my calculation would be based on 2.5%. So I'm going to get into an example to kind of illustrate a little bit. So if I did want to retire at 60 years old, and let's say I wanted to retire at 60 years old, and I want to be making or like I want to be living off of 60k a year, I would use 3.5% as my calculation because it's five years less than, you know, the 65 baseline. And that means I would need $1.7 million in retirement so that I can take out $60, $60,000 a year safely and retire at 60. Let's say now that I want to retire at 50. If I wanted to retire at 50, again, with $60,000 of money that I'm you know spending every year, then the percentage that I would use to calculate is 2.5%, right? Because it's 4 minus 1.5 because I'm retiring at 50 instead of 65. So if I use 2.5% as my calculation, then basically what I'm doing is 60,000 divided by 2.5%. That gives me $2.4 million. So that means I need $2.4 million saved away at 50 or like a Nasdaq at 50 that allows me to take out $60,000 a year consistently in retirement. And the reason that you're subtracting these percentages is because remember the 4% rule is based on you living 30 years in retirement. So from 65 to like 95, right? But obviously if you're retiring early, then you're going to be living more years in retirement, right? So you have to make it look like you're not taking that much out. So that's why you're using these lower percentages. Okay, so I hope that all made sense um, and you're kind of processing those numbers. It's always hard to communicate numbers, I feel like, in an audio format. And one thing that I do want to touch on before we go with retirement and stuff is the doubling rate of money. So basically, money is going to double every few years, right? Depending on your interest rate or like the amount of percentage that your investments are growing. So the, the way you figure out your doubling rate of money is you divide 72 by your interest rate. So let's say my interest rate is 7.2%. That is going to give you a doubling rate of 10 years. So I'm just using 7.2% to keep it simple here because you divide 72 by your interest rates, right? So 72 divided by 7.2 is going to be 10. So that means that every 10 years, my money is going to double. I personally think that your interest rate might be more than 7% or like, you know, 7.2% because, you know, depending on what kind of asset classes you have, it might end up returning more. But let's just use this to be safe because that 7% is also what the 4% rule uses, right? So basically what that means is 
if you have 2.4 million dollars like your goal at 50 was 2.4 million dollars to retire right so going back to the retirement example um if i wanted to take out sixty thousand dollars a year i need 2.4 million dollars to retire at 50. the doubling rate of money means that if your money is doubling every 10 years then at 40 you need to have 1.2 million dollars saved right because from 40 to 50 it's going to double to 2.4 and if you need 1.2 million dollars at 40 that means at 30 you're going to need 600k saved because again it's going to double and this is assuming that you're not putting in any more money so at 30 if you have $600,000 saved you don't need to put in any more money and your money is going to double and double to 2.4 million dollars at 50 and you can retire so does that make sense? So I like to use these two numbers to figure out like kind of like retirement goals or whatever, because you use a 4% rule, you deduct 0.5% for every five years that you want to retire earlier than 65. And then you can use a doubling rate of money to figure out how much you need to have saved by a certain age. And like I said, because this is assuming that you're not going to put in any more money after you hit this target, right? But likely you will. So even if I, let's say I want to retire at 50, let's suppose, and Sticking to this example, that means that at the age of 30, I need $600,000, right? So let's say I get to $600,000 by the age of 30. This is assuming I'm not going to put in any more after that, but likely I will, right? So it's going to double to $2.4 million if I don't even touch it. But because I'm going to be putting in more, I'm going to end up with actually more than $2.4 million by 50. So I hope that made sense and that you can use this to figure out your own goal for whenever you want to retire figure out when you want to retire, how much money you're going to need in retirement. So first step, the age, then figure out how much money you're going to need each year to live on. And that's going to depend on what you want your retirement to look like. Then figure out the percentage you're going to use to calculate. So like I said, from 4%, deduct 0.5 for every five years less than 65 that you want to retire at. Then you're going to take the number that you're going to spend per year in retirement and divide it by the percentage that you just calculated. That's going to give you the amount of money that you need in retirement total, like your nest egg. Then take that and use a doubling rate of money to work backwards into how much money you need to have saved, you know, in the next few years or whatever, where you wouldn't even have to touch it anymore for it to double and hit your target retirement amount. So I hope that was helpful and definitely there's a lot more to talk about and a lot more nuance obviously because if you're going to keep adding to it, it's going to keep growing and all of that math but yeah i hope that was really helpful i had a lot of fun talking about this and i'm really looking forward to seeing what ganika has to say on the subject either and as far as my ending notes about this whole personal finance um, subject um, something that has really helped me in the past year is tracking my investments just remember that what you measure or you know, keep track of is going to improve and grow, right? Because you're not only training your brain to like, okay, this is important to me. And you know, you're kind of subconsciously remembering it. But also by tracking it, you are becoming more mindful of like where to allocate your energy and where to actually allocate your like physical money. So do that for investments, right? Like whatever you measure is going to improve and grow. The same goes for your investments. So it just makes you more conscious. And doing this in the last year has really, really helped me. And like I said, I don't check my investments every day. In fact, I I only check them like once every two to three months. Obviously, like I'll open the app if I'm putting money into it, but I won't like actively check all of my accounts until like a few months have passed or like once every quarter or something. And that's when I'll like 
take note of it from the previous quarter and that has really helped me because then I can see the growth and I can see like oh like what I'm doing is working or you know here's how I can tweak it so I would say really really do that another ending note is you know we will put some in the show notes like different podcasts you can listen to to kind of continue to grow your personal finance knowledge like obviously this is not a personal finance podcast but this is just like a fun episode I wanted to do because I think finance plays a lot into entrepreneurship whether we're talking about quitting your job or retiring but just even managing like the ins and outs of your personal finance while you're working on a business and of course business finance is a whole other thing right so it's important to have knowledge of this so I will put some shows that I like to listen to in the show notes but I would say continue to grow your knowledge and uh, my personal goal like I mentioned I love the money guy show and because they're actual fund managers I would love to have them manage my money someday. So I'm just putting it out into the universe. Um, That's my personal goal. And yeah, I just had a great time. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And like I said, because I split this, um, please listen to both parts. And then the next segment, Ganika is going to be doing uh, some other topics that she can talk about there. And yeah, we are really, really grateful that you're listening to the Lightbulb Moment podcast. Have a great day and we will catch you next time. Bye. Want to get a workbook detailing steps you can take for your business today, as well as our top recommendations for entrepreneurs? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot and email it to contact at thinkida.com. Thank you for listening to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. We'll see you here next time.